I think perfect example of that, Ben Mala. You know Ben Mala? I know the name. The really big Florida guy. Yeah, just the really overweight, self-made, like 100 millionaire from real estate. One of their locations in California, $1.5 million gross with 51% net margins, which is absolutely insane. You're listening to the Next Generation Podcast, weekly interviews with the most interesting and successful 20-somethings out there. Today's episode, Connor and I are whipping up some fun ideas that we've had over the past couple of weeks. This is going to be similar to the other episode we did, and we're going to cover ways to make a bunch of money and super other interesting topics that we came up with. An important housekeeping note is for anyone out there who makes content, whether it's on YouTube, TikTok, podcasts, whatever, is if you want probably the easiest way to make better content in the beginning, you don't even need better ideas. You just need way higher energy. And so you and I get on this call right now and he's like, I feel low energy, just did a bunch of jumping jacks. So he's sweating a little bit now at this point. If the energy is high and the audience is having a good time, content honestly doesn't even have to be that good. So I think perfect example of that, Ben Mala. You know Ben Mala? I know the name. The really big Florida guy? Yeah, just the really overweight, self-made, like 100 millionaire from real estate. So he actually, for what it's worth, is probably one of the only real estate investors who hasn't raised a lot of outside capital and uses only his own money to buy a ton of stuff. For anyone that hasn't seen him, go look him up on YouTube because it's just him with like, I think his sons to some extent filming him and like a different content team. They're just going around. He's genuinely gross. Like, probably weighs like 350 pounds sounds like he chain smokes a pack of cigarettes a day but he's so high energy in all of these videos i gotta imagine he's probably drinking like seven or eight cokes and some monsters and red bulls throughout the day as well anyway just a quick housework in case anyone housekeeping note in case anybody is looking to go and create content just be more high energy and bring some excitement to the conversation for what it's worth i have a lot of good ideas and interesting things that i found in the last two weeks that i think will make this episode interesting but i think that's a good place to start you're you're just a assuming these are going to be good ideas. Wow. We did get some cool feedback last time too. So thank you for everyone that that commented or shot us emails about the uh, the last episode um, Connor and I did. thing on this episode is we have stuff here that'll range from, this is cool. Should we, should we set an agenda? Should we set an agenda kind of like walk through everything? Because I think that would be kind of helpful. All right. I think things that I want to talk about, diversifiedrack.com, geoguessers, Mostly just want to make fun of the fact that Jewel just had to settle 5,000 lawsuits, which is one lawsuit per day for the last 14 years. I don't even have anything else that I want to dive in on that. I just think that's hilarious. Um, And then I think I want to get into your stuff on Roger Federer. I think the $2 bill stuff is really interesting. And then either Funbox or this do not pay uh, product. So we can kick things off any way you want to go and do it. What was the first one you said you wanted to do? Diversified Rack? Let's start with that. Yeah. Okay. So I was home for Thanksgiving, driving to Jersey, and... I'm sure I know you're the same way that I am, where you have more screenshots on your phone than you do photos of things that are happening in your life because you see something interesting and you're like, I want to remember that later. And then if you're like me, you never go back and actually look at them later. See, the one thing I do is if I don't buy Wi-Fi on the plane is I'll go through and just use it as a chance to clear up all of my old photos because I'm like, well, I can't really do anything else on my phone anyway. This is the perfect example of a real life screenshot where I'm driving down the side of the highway and I just see a massive billboard that says diversifiedrack.com. Like, uh, we'll, you know, we'll buy your racks. And I was like, what the hell does that even mean? (laughs) So basically I went on the website later on and it sounds so boring, but I looked up their company. They have a few hundred employees and it looks actually like decently big. They buy any type of shelving. So racks are just like shelving in big warehouses. Okay. And so they'll oh, is go this and for buy warehouses? It. Yep, exactly. Okay. I originally thought you were talking about like closets Pallets. or, or oh. just like home rack systems. Okay. No, no, no. On their so so it's, all, it's all industrial. Oh, it's all B2B. Cool. 
And so they go and buy a ton of different used racks or shelving stuff, these big warehouses. Um, and they'll just go and basically refurbish them and resell them. So I don't really know what the margin is and how the entire model works. But the one thing that I will say about this business is anytime that I see stuff like this, where it's super corporate, like when we brought on, uh, was it was it Reg before? Reg who's doing like all the uh, forgeries and stuff like yeah, that? Yep, Reg. Foundries. I don't know. When I started hearing, now ever since that episode, I'm looking at all of the most boring stuff that you see on a daily basis. And I'm like, God, somebody's making a ton of money there. And so the biggest thing that it reminded me of, first off, is one, I would say I would want to dive a little bit deeper into like actually how much money they're making. Are they just buying it used and selling it refurbished? Or what's what's the margin? What's the model on all of that? But more importantly, what it reminded me of is big ass fans. You, do you know the story of that? Yeah, they have. Um, what was a podcast? It did a great interview. It might have been how I built this. He's but, been on a couple. Yeah, super, super interesting. Um story so the the story of big ass fans is this guy basically got into the industrial fan space for warehouses same thing so if you honestly if you've never been in a warehouse you've probably never heard of the company but they sold a couple of years ago for 500 million dollars and I've seen them at airports a couple of times it's like if you look up and there's a fan with blades that are like 10 feet 15, long yeah. 15 feet long that's it's probably much them. the biggest fan yeah and so the guy was like selling all of this stuff and he has just a pretty, pretty clever personality and like likes to make jokes about this stuff. So he named the company Big Ass Fans. It's literally their logo is a photo of just a donkey uh, on the center of the fans. And he was running it for like 10 or 15 years, I believe. And his whole thesis was like, I'm never going to go and sell this company. Like, I'm going to give this to my kids, whatever. But he was constantly, because he was so big and he was so big in the space, constantly getting approached by different either strategic buyers or private equity firms who wanted to go and buy him. And I don't know how much money they were necessarily doing at the time, but he basically said, listen, if you want to buy me, it's going to be $500 million. And if they turned around and said, listen, you know, we can probably make the $499 worth from a valuation standpoint. I think people have literally gone to him and said that. He would say, nope, fuck you. I'm not going to go sell my company to you. And the $500, when asked about it in later interviews, he was like, I made up the number in my head. He's like, that's the number <laughs> that I would be okay. He's like, it made zero sense at all from a growth, from a multiple, from any kind of standpoint, but I was not going to go and sell this company. And so if somebody wanted to pay me $500 million, the company could be theirs. But until that happens, it's not. And so he actually ended up selling for $500 million. I don't know the state of the company today, but I tell this story only because I think one, the bar is so low for clever marketing in the business to business space. Like they are like probably have warehouse workers laughing their asses off just because they're selling big ass fans in these spaces. And I think you can probably do a pretty decent job selling these massively priced products just with better marketing. And the reason I bring it up as well is because I think, honestly, if this rack or shelving company actually is profitable, I think you can do the same exact thing in that space. I checked. If you want to buy massiveracks.com, um, it's only $1,800 for that domain name. You could probably get maybe big or even if you wanted to sell like specifically tiny ones, tinyracks.com. And I think as as fratty as this conversation is turning into right now, I do think that that would probably actually be a decent business and have good marketing around it. What do you think? I mean, I, from the fact that they're already on billboards, I think even kind of doubles down on your point. Like, had it even been one of these really absurd or aggressive URLs, I think that'd probably just get more people. Yeah, completely agreed. And so, I think no, and I do think that absolutely. the overall 
overall, the industrial space is growing like crazy, especially with all the 3PL stuff with e-commerce and more people are using storages and storage and all of that stuff. So I do think that overall, the industry itself makes sense. I just don't know the business model, but I do think that finding the most boring stuff humanly possible, whether that's ceiling fans or shelving, and just putting on like the bare minimum when it comes to a marketing standpoint, I think you could probably take these businesses pretty far. I love it. It's really, it's so easy to stand out too because if you look at the the regular name of most of these, there's just like model numbers on it. I think Sony, which is probably like a, a weird example, but probably the worst consumer goods branding I've seen is their headphones. I forgot what they're actually called. They, they just have like the model number for their really popular sound canceling headphones, whereas the Bose has like quiet comfort or mm. the Apple AirPod Maxes, um, the Sony's, the XR. Like, I don't, know, I don't even remember because it's a even, horrible name. Even the same with monitors. Like, I could not tell oh, anybody yeah. what monitor I own. <laughs> and I understand that people who are really into monitors, the gamers, they love to see, like, what the what the definition is of it and, like, what the sizing is, like, in the product name. But it makes no sense at all. What you got? I found this one on Twitter. But to preface it a bit more, one of the... Highest grossing and highest margin businesses I think I've come across in recent times. And it is all on doing gigantic bouncy houses, which I know we talked a little bit uh, previously about some more kind of like pop-up, large pop-up scale type businesses like Spirit Halloween. I think this could have a similar-ish model and just crushes it in the amount of money they make. So they have one location, okay, to context, 25,000 square foot like adventure inflatable park. One of their locations in California, $1.5 million gross with 51% net margins, which is absolutely insane. So, so they're making $750,000 on what one on how many how many bouncy houses do you need? So the, it, it's one giant 25,000 square foot bouncy house. So yeah, on the 1.5 million in 22 weeks, they netted $785,000. Wait, hold on. Sorry. So they're not they're not like it's not the classic model of like, bringing this to a kid's birthday party. It's you show up to us and we have the world's largest bouncy house. Yes. So if you, you can go to um, their website or their um, funbox.com, I'm on it right now. Yeah. The world's biggest bounce park. Okay. So they're marketing as a park. Yes. So this would Holy not be, shit. so you, you would have to go and, and, you know, get some land or the inside of a mall, but it's temporary, right? It's just an inflatable thing. You can move it around. And I think they only do it for a couple of weeks out of the year in different locations. One of the worst part about getting older is the I see I see if I see this one I'm like 12 years old I'm like mom we're going now I'm like wonder what their insurance cost is like <laughs> I'm like I'm like this looks like a massive liability the craziest part too I still want to go is, though like I'm still that that part hasn't changed uh right I mean insurance they list out on their website as 0.5 percent of revenue to 0.7 percent so for the 1.5 million dollars in revenue they paid $10,000 in insurance. So you describe this as basically their one location will make 50% margins on 1.5 million in a tw in 22 weeks. That's less than half a year. Why are they only open for half a year? I think because it's temporary. So if you look through their financials, you'll see that there is, I think, rentals. And I wouldn't be surprised if they're leasing out some of these spots temporarily. And it's probably also a summer thing. They have one location that I think is more permanent in like a mall that they took over. But one of them was just like outdoors in a park, All right? And average ticket, $22 a ticket. So the craziest part is that now you're looking at oh, um, like how many people are actually going, you're saying? Like, are you right. So, so, to, so to get the 1.5 million, you had to bring in 68,000 people in a two-week time span. So you're, you're, you're at about 700. Wait, wait, sorry, sorry. You're saying a 22-week time span. Sorry, sorry, 22-week time yeah. span. So you're going to get about 770 people 
per day across 88 days. I'm surprised that I know I feel like everything's back after COVID, like bars are packed and clubs are packed and festivals are happening, whatever. But I'm surprised that people are going to this and that it's as popular as it is in this era where like I get same thing like of me probably being a Grinch and I'm just looking at this from an insurance cost standpoint. But I'm also looking at it partially from like, oh, it seems gross and no way are they watching like all of the crevices of this like inflatable canvas. I mean, it seems like a better version of what is it launch or launch something. I think it's those trampoline parks in the malls. Whereas mm-hmm. I like I think this is almost kind of a portable version. But I think if you the, the other side note of this, like they're they're franchising, right? So you can open up a franchise on this. I think it costs it's 25 grand for a franchise fee and then initial investment of 400 to I think 700 grand. But if you have like an area where, where this would work, I think you need a huge population base to pull from because you need clearly thousands and thousands of people to go. Like I still can't get over the 68,000 just seems insane. Do you know who runs this? Because I'm curious, like I'm just on the website right now, and like they're FAQs. I mean, Hollier right? Investments LLC, but I gotta, I gotta. Do, I know, but like, I'm curious, the like the actual person, because I gotta imagine somebody that's like in their late 20s, early 30s, only because I've, I'm on their website right now, and like they have a fun box Spotify playlist at the bottom, and I feel like anytime that you have the marketing capacity to build your own startups playlist, it means that you. I don't know, like you're, you're either clever with the marketing or overfunded or something. I bet this entire business model revolves around the marketing just based on the number of people you need to get in there. So I think like Instagram side, they, they've got what, 80, 90,000 followers on Instagram. I think it's definitely marketing play, but I think it is a fascinating business that I would love to see like smaller versions pop up and go yeah check them out no, that's pretty cool I'm, I'm interested with the scarcity side of it right like is the fact that it's only in town like a carnival for 22 weeks is that enough to like drive up demand because it seems like the logistics are tough where like you have to buy find a ton of seasonal talent you have to find temporary workers to staff it all and then you're in and out i don't months. i don't think that's their i don't think it is pitched necessarily as a temporary one i don't know why they do the 22 weeks i just think it can be because if you go on their website you can still go buy a ticket for any of the locations that they're in for about $22 oh, for the week. Dude, okay. I'm found, found who started it. Antonio Nieves started it when he was 24 years old. He got inspiration for childhood designs from his nine younger siblings. Interesting. Yeah, I'm curious how, how old this guy is now. But Antonio Nieves, 24 years old when he started this thing. That's insane. I think definitely worth following along. Follow him on Instagram. Check out their website if you want to see a video because it does not do it justice the way we're talking about it. Now, now I'm over on his LinkedIn. He's been doing it for <laughs> almost five years. The way he phrases it, I'm the founder of a new type of selfie museum with a focus on children, family entertainment, localized community, fun box, multiple entertainment concepts that are family focused, operating multiple cities across America, corporate and franchise owned. Interesting. Damn, he's been doing it since basically 2018. He graduated from college in 2016. So that means he's basically 28 years old now, or I guess if he's been doing it for over four years and he's 24, it's like 29 now. All right. Well, um, sounds like we got our next podcast guest, maybe. Also, it's always so interesting finding these people and figuring out where they worked before. He was He's a project manager over at cups.com. What is cups.com? <laughs> interesting guy, interesting concepts. I don't know if I would want to get involved, but I like the concept. Next thing I've got, here's something that I only thought of because I went on a podcast a day or two ago and they asked me about like short-term rentals. And I was like, guys, I just want to clarify, like I know. I know nothing about short-term rentals. Uh, like, I don't know why. I don't want to be a point of authority. I don't want your guests to think I'm a point of authority on this. Like, I'll, I'll brainstorm some ideas. They're like, yeah, yeah, just brainstorm ideas. Here's the idea I had, and it's solely based on a conversation that we actually had on one of these podcast episodes with Isaac French 
where around bookings and short-term rental bookings. So I think the big thing that right now is probably a pretty fundamental shift with short-term rentals is the fact that way more people are using them than ever. However, the main ways of going and acquiring customers as a short-term rental, which means like, you know, Airbnb owner, like three, two to five night stays, that kind of stuff is via Airbnb, VRBO, you know, some other type of like booking platform. And that becomes really tough, especially if you're ever trying to go and sell that asset, because if you have a great Airbnb listing and all of a sudden tomorrow, Airbnb is like, eh, we don't like you. Like the revenue generating asset that you had, that you just sold off for like an eight or 10 cap is kind of kind of worthless. It like also you're, doesn't you're, transfer, right? Like the, the Airbnb listing doesn't stick with a property. So if you if you go to buy it, oh, I didn't like, know that. you have to either come up with a new one, go through the whole super hosting again. It is operator. It, it, it's linked to the operator, not the actual property. Okay. I didn't even know that. Yeah. So, so either way, there's a whole bunch of issues there. And so my thought is how can you go and kind of build up these short-term rental models in a way that's a little bit less dependent specifically on Airbnb or VRBO? I think it, you're still gonna have to have some kind of dependency somewhere else, but what could be interesting there? And I think the one that I just thought of that I think could probably work is look at all of these massive corporations and what are they paying for today in terms of accommodations today? Right now, companies, especially for any kind of business travel, all tend to go and to send people to hotels because they have huge partnerships with you know the Marriotts of the world, the Hyatts, the Hiltons, all of those kind of guys. And so if you're if you're traveling from Microsoft, you're gonna be staying at a Hilton. Now, that's good in the sense that like it's a very standardized experience. You kind of know what you're getting, but it can be bad in the sense that like it's not like an incredible experience. Like you stay at one Hilton, you stay at the mall. And I was going to say that I think it'd be pretty interesting. And I don't know if this thesis would work if you wanted to go and raise some kind of fund and basically acquire as many single family residential houses or even just apartment buildings as humanly possible in the most traveled and frequented to cities of some kind of corporation. So like, for example, Palo Alto or, or something like that. I mean, Palo Alto is expensive as hell, so maybe not that. But like, let's say like somewhere outside of Seattle, if you want to go and partner up with Amazon. I'm going to keep using the Microsoft example, though, just because this is what I wrote down. And every time that somebody goes and checks into their short-term rental, like let's say that either you're a candidate and they're flying you out to interview or you're a consultant and like Microsoft has to go and put you up or you're just like a project manager traveling to go meet up with your team for the weekend. They put you up in a short-term housing that is Microsoft enabled stays. So as like the property manager and the developer, you turn to Microsoft and say, listen, I'm going to go and buy a ton of these properties. And I'm going to make them exactly what you would want to go and give your employees when they're traveling and staying with you. So what that means is like, you'll have some kind of employee or candidate welcome pack when you go and arrive, right? Maybe it's got like, I don't know, some champagne or a fruit dish or or like even like uh, Microsoft's like corporate swag, like a t-shirt or something like that. They'll have a home office in every single short-term rental with all of Microsoft software installed throughout the computer. So if you need to go and use Word or Excel or anything like that, you can do it. Every location is within 30 minutes of a major airport. And I'm wondering if there's like just enough amenities that could be specific to a certain corporation where they would say, great, we actually have these Microsoft stays. It's an employee perk as a part of working for us and working with us. And, you know, we're not going to put you up in this hill. We'll put you up in these like really cool spots that are super tech enabled. Like, for example, if you partner with Amazon, maybe every single one has like an echo built in and like I internet of things, kind of like lights and technology where you can say, great, Alexa, turn the lights off and it all works. I think that could be kind of cool. But so are you saying an employee perk where I could just go for the weekend if I wanted to without I don't actually know. having a reason to go there? Because I think 
Right. If you look at, I think, a, a lot of corporate travel, a lot of it, I think, has to do with like sometimes you're going to random towns to go meet with, I don't know, you're you know, some some manufacturing facility. So you don't necessarily I don't have the scale to do it. And I think the other aspect, too, is that a lot of reasons why people prefer hotels now instead of Airbnbs is because just the check in and check out process is pretty much a guaranteed consistency, whereas you check into Airbnbs, it's not always clean. But I do think if you picked major areas, like what city has the most kind of corporate travel, and you did a short term rental focused that was specifically for high end corporate travel, I think you'd have to charge a lot more. But if you had like a very, very specific check in process, you did have those home offices, I think there's probably something there, I think you just have to find the right cities. And I think you'd have to just guarantee that, you know, I don't want to have to message someone to get the door code or whatever, right? right? It's just, hey, this is the address. This is how you get in. And all your stuff's already set up when you get there. And I was gonna say, I mean, the cool part about this too, is like, because let's say it would have to be big, you'd have to work out a really big partnership with some of these massive companies to go and actually do it. But the interesting part would be, you could go and have a totally different check-in experience. Like maybe the check-in is quite literally text this number, this code, and the door will automatically unlock and you'll find the key inside for future log check-ins, right? Like you can make the experience way different because it's a private company. You don't have to use Airbnb's check-in experience, which I do think is nice. The other benefit about this specifically for short-term rentals is you are filling up the week during the hardest times to fill up a short-term rental week, which is Monday through Friday or Monday through Thursday, I guess, realistically. Most short-term rentals thrive around that Thursday, Thursday through Saturday threshold. This kind of actually lets you get way more bookings during the week itself, which has a higher occupancy. I, I personally just find it interesting because I know we've kind of talked before about there's a lot of different retail and strip mall types of locations where somebody will go and basically partner up with a national franchise and say, great, my value-add strategy is I'm going to go and buy this strip mall. I'm going to go and have a Planet Fitness go and move in directly after me and sign like a five-year lease. And now all of a sudden, the asset of the property itself has become exponentially more valuable. I'll hold it for two more years and then I'll go and sell it off for you know a sizable markup. I would think this could be similar despite the fact that STRs are still a weird asset class and not really traded relative on a commercial like cap rate level, whereas they're still usually valued as like single family residential. Yeah, I think I think there's something there. I think you'd have to figure out the base behind a lot of the corporate travel a bit more and why they're doing it and how much demand there is. But I think there's definitely a much better short term rental model that you've seen, I think, a little bit more recently, too, because people are always complaining about like, I don't want to do the trash and do all the laundry when I'm checking right. out, right? Like that that's why people, I think, then decide to go back to hotels. So I think, I think there's something there, especially if you focus, focused on the corporate aspect. One more element, because I, I kind of briefly alluded to this, but I don't think people know how big of a market this is. One of the times I was working at a corporate travel startup, they found that there is a huge market of massive companies flying individuals out to go and interview and then flying them back, right? And so the company that I was working for wanted to go and design a whole process around like, how do you go and like book their flights? And how do you go and like, uh, you know, confirm everything? And because and, realistically, the company is paying for your flights and they don't know you that well. So like you're not communicating via like internal Slack. Like you have to go back and forth. Like, did these times work for you? And like, you know, kind of schedule. So that was, that was what the problem they were trying to solve. I do think this could be a great recruiting tactic as well. Like imagine getting flown out and saying like, oh yeah, I'm going to go interview at Google next week. The, you know, I'm not saying at a, like a Marriott or a Hilton, I'm staying at like what they're calling like 
a Google deluxe pod or I don't know, something ridiculous. And you go out there and like you're interviewing as somebody in college and there's like massage chairs, a hot tub, like, you know, a fully stocked fridge, like all of this kind of stuff. That in my mind is like a huge benefit on like the recruiting, especially when you're trying to go and really wine and dine somebody over. It's the equivalent of Google adding in their own version of a hotel to their campus to some extent, which I would be more actually confused if they didn't have some sort of accommodation. But if I had to guess, it's hotels. Already. I think it's probably hotels right now. Interesting. Yeah, I think there's something there. Cool. All right, what you got? Next one. I think for the first time, Google now has a real competitor that no one could have predicted five years ago. And I think it's one of those cases where if you said, okay, what is a potential risk for Google in the in a competition space? Most people would say a better search engine. So I think now we've gone from the rather than going from the one to the two on search engine to better search engine. I think this is the first time where you have search engine to zero to one on an entirely different concept of I can now type in a question, I can type in an answer, and my result is going to be an entire article or formatted piece of written content that answers all of my questions and doesn't require me to go through links and do any other research on that. It's it's equivalent of like hitting the I'm feeling lucky button on Google without any of the issues that arise of, you know, maybe just getting one article that that's at the top. The I'm feeling lucky feature on Google is the funniest thing ever. I I don't think anyone uses it, right? It's got to be like 1% of people actually use it. Yeah, I don't think so. I think it just gives you the first link or the first. I think it literally just skips over like the ability to see the 10 index pages and you just go directly to that first index page. But okay, a couple things. One, I think you should clarify what, what exactly you're talking about. Um, so to give context, a lot of the new, I know people don't don't love hearing all the artificial intelligence words, but it. GPT-3, right? So there, there's a lot of crazy advancements that have happened in the past year in terms of text, AI, and, and, and kind of computers generating these different contents. And they're similarly doing what, what Google does in terms of scraping the entire internet, taking all of that information and, you know, looking at it and and throwing it into their algorithm. But the end result is significantly different. I could type in, hey, give me a three page paragraph on the best way to train a golden retriever. And it's just going to give you three paragraphs. The actual content right now is probably going to be mixed in terms of how, how well it's presented. But just based on the past year or two and in like how far it's advanced, give another five to 10 years and you're just going to have it's the equivalent of like going up and just having an expert give you the answers you want without having to do any more research on it. OK, explain to me how this is different from our last episode where you and I had different takes. And now it sounds like you've switched your opinion slightly here, also based on having new evidence to bring to the table, which is fair. But last time we chatted, it was about artificial intelligent content that would come out. And your point was. I don't think the artificial intelligence content is going to be as good and it'll probably be suppressed by Google and because people want to go and actually have real reviews of product reviews or experiences, mm-hmm. et cetera. My point was, I don't think people care about the real stuff. I think they just want their answer as quickly as possible. I think they want just want the helpful answer. It sounds like now you're saying, well, the artificial intelligence can actually give you the helpful answer. So it's going to be superior to whatever, to you know, uh, somebody who actually bought a product and made a whole 25-minute YouTube video about it. So the other thing we talked about is how do you tell if it is artificially generated content? And right now you can, like most of the algorithms will give you a yes or no, like in a 90 plus percent accuracy on if it's artificially generated or not. I think down the road though, I think that's going to be a lot less evident. And then you do have these issues where what is fake and what is real 
And then it just stops any of the guessing on the consumer side. Probably the possibility that Google goes into this themselves, maybe. I just think the concept of having a search engine where you type something in and it just gives you a summary of all the data on the internet. Yeah, you're going to have a ton of issues with fake information and I don't know how you're going to deal with that. Okay, so two points. One, where, where do I go to even find this? Like I've seen everyone posting screenshots about it. I have spent zero minutes of my life actually diving into it. Is there a certain website that I would have to go to to actually find this and um, for myself? I think you can... The issue is that like a lot of it has to do with like running different beta versions of all of this software or paying for it. But I think you can sign up on chat.openai.com. I think it gets some people excited. It gets me so not excited. I don't like. What about only... you excited? Because uh, I think I don't think that like there's that big of an issue right now. But also same thing. It doesn't get me excited because like I'm not spending time thinking about this at all. Once it's actually good enough where it replaces what I'm working on, I'll spend time thinking about it. But like honestly, it seems like. The only thing that I'm taking away from this conversation is if you run a content site and you're planning on going and making a ton of money off of content, I think this could fuck you really badly. I also think if you run video-based platforms, I think I would double down on that. And I think that like you mentioned that this is Google's first real competitor. Like honestly, dude, everyone our age, especially girls, when it comes time to like figure out things to do, what's doing you're traveling, like all of that kind of stuff. To, they all go to TikTok before they go to Google. And so like, I personally have not got to that point yet, but I do think that video specific content is getting way, way better every single year. And I think I would double down on that if I was focused on that. And I would probably pull some chips off the table if I was running a content site right now. If I had to guess, I think it's going to separate into, do we want travel and restaurant recommendations? I think that's going to go to the video one. I think when you go to do I want specific how-to information? There's going to be more platforms for that. If I had to guess, I think in the future, there's going to be more siloed places that people go rather than the, let me just Google it. And it's a generic question and then figure it out. Yeah, for travel, TikTok's been phenomenal. I think the other cool actual use case of this, there's a company called Do Not Pay. They provide like automated legal services-ish. The actual description's a bit confusing, but they'll they'll help you like renegotiate your utility bills and phone bills and one of the things they just launched into beta is using this software to help you renegotiate your Comcast bill, where cool. it'll open up the live chat feature and negotiate on your behalf as if you're a real human to get your Comcast bill lower. So Yeah, okay. That's that's actually very cool. The one last thing neat. that I was going to say on the content piece, though, as I'm thinking about this more, is I agree with you on the how to do something. This is going to change the game and be way better. Because if I go on... And I type in like how to go and do some form of edit in Premiere Pro. Right now, Google has gotten pretty good at surfacing the top video of a quick tutorial of how to do something in the software, but it could be better. And I do think that there's probably way more niche searches around that kind of stuff that just having the right answer surface immediately would be incredible. However, the one thing that I do think will thrive in this environment, if you know the, the more cut and dry, there is a right and wrong way to go and do this type of content is being figured out, is anything that's personality driven or personality based. And so I know you and I both, for example, like when it comes to traveling and looking for travel suggestions, if I go and say, like, just booked a trip down to Columbia, for example, the beginning of January. And so if I go and say best things to do in Columbia, like, oh my God, I could not tell you how little I care about going to a museum. That content gets surfaced pretty quickly on the beginning of Google. But if I go to that one blog, I think you and I both like, it's like, I think it's the party backpacker or something along those lines. And broke backpackers. Yeah. yeah no, there's, there's a oh, no, no. I, it's the partying traveler. 
is what it is. And all of that content is geared around somebody who wants to go and travel to new places, is probably in their 20s and likes to party versus like wanting to go and see museums and statues. And I'm like, I'll see that. I'll I'll definitely, if there's something to see, I should see it. (laughs) <laughs> if there's something to see, I would like to see it. However, like if I just type in best things to do in Medellin, Colombia, it's going to say like, oh man, you have to go and check out like this, the old Pablo Escobar house or something. I'm like, I might want to do that, but it's probably not the top thing on my list. So I do think that a lot of the content is going to be driven to be more like demographic specific of like, I like this person because of their fitness tips. And so if I type in like how to go and lose weight, it's not going to tell me to do burpees and eat celery. It'll tell me to go and like lift more weights and eat a higher protein diet. And, you know, that'll get me the physique that I want to go for for this guy. I just think that's going to be a bigger, bigger element. I think it also just opens up the actual format on how you can get information to potentially from an accessibility side. I think if you picture someone that might be older and also not tech savvy to even want to open up a web browser, go to the website and type something in, it's pretty easy to imagine a scenario where text to speech and speech to text gets good enough, especially with all the deep fakes now too, where you can mimic other people's voices. You have a grandparent picks up the phone, they can just call whatever the 1-800 give me an answer number is Mm. and say, hey, give me a quick summary of the some sort of revolution or an ingredient list or some random question. And it's going to just generate this whole answer and feed it back to them with some really normal voice and explain to them to do whatever the situation is. The issue there then becomes you're probably going to see the same thing happening with scams, right? Where like all these phone scams where you're calling people and interacting on the other side. Okay. You look at right now, the two main acquisition channels from digital marketing that people are making the most money off of, and it's via Meta and Google, right? Correct me if you have another opinion. You're you're saying on on like ad spend? On ads, specifically the advertising industry, the biggest industry on the planet, right? So my question then becomes, okay, we're already seeing a lot of Apple's features roll out go and hurt Meta's ability to go and target. You're seeing a decline in terms of even like user uh, growth on Facebook, on Instagram, on all of their platforms. So that platform's getting hurt. And I think that's already being talked about quite a bit. Google, I mean, we can look up the numbers here in a second, but actually, yeah, take, can you look up how much Google makes from advertising dollars? It's, I know it's in like literally- it's Probably just most of their money, right? Oh, no, no, of course. Yeah, but I'm just curious, like, on an annual basis, people spend so much money with Google, but it's also how people today are finding out and learning about new products is via paid media, either social or, or search. Twenty twenty was one hundred and forty six billion dollars. So an absolute ludicrous amount. But what's also not talked like people are like, wow, Google makes so much money in advertising. Like, how are they going to go and like replace that revenue if this becomes a big competitor to them? What's not talked about is probably the return of all of those advertising dollars of the fact that people are making trillions by being able to go and advertise properly on Google, whether you're, you are an attorney and it's your main source of lead gen or whether you are selling like trinkets on the internet and this is how you go and acquire customers when they search for a product like, your, like yours. So I do think that's going to be another really big thing to figure out is how are people going to be monetizing? Are going to market themselves? advertising? Yeah, even exactly. just said like how like where, where do you put pitch your services? And I think that also circles back to your point on TikTok and video content is like there are people generating tons and tons of business with zero marketing dollars just because they're making interesting content. 100%. I think a lot of that marketing money is going to start going through a ton of different platforms and focus on more unique content, which everyone probably knows to some extent. All right, to switch things up a little bit here. I have two. One, I think is actually a little bit more in depth than the other. But do you want to go through geo guessers 
not G-E-O, not G-I-O, or just my latest obsession with ranch content. I mean, the GeoGuessr one is cool. I think a lot of people have probably seen some of those videos online now. Of... No way have a lot of people heard about this. I thought this was, have you heard about this? Yeah, like all the time. I would guess like if a thousand people listen to this podcast episode, 960 of them have not heard about this. What? No. I'm going to make a Twitter poll after this and try to figure out exactly who knows about what GeoGuessers are. Because this, I heard about them for the first time two weeks ago. I mean, and you're just clearly behind on like a lot of things. Very evident. I'm slow. I'm not, not, not the quickest. Now it's like, it's like me getting on a podcast and be like, have you heard about this thing called social media? It's, I think it's going to be a pretty big thing one day. It is definitely cool. And the context is there are people that can go almost anywhere on Google Street View and within 10 seconds, get within like 100 miles anywhere on the globe and make a guess on That's where they are. Insane. Yeah, you, you described that perfectly. So it's, it's just just to summarize, they see a photo, This the photo can quite literally contain like a mailbox, a type of tree, a, a road, like maybe a house. Usually it's not even that much information. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's probably Croatia. And then like, but not even probably Croatia. They're like, oh, that 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 is the southwestern sphere between you know this and this area, and then they'll get it within miles. Specifically, the guy that I found or or was shown to me is Geo Rain. So I'm going to spell it G E O R A I N Bolt B O L T. That's who I found on TikTok. And this guy, I can't tell if it's fake or not. I want to believe so badly that it's real. We'll say like, I will see a distorted photo. So like if the photo's cut in thirds and then like missed, like swapped on sides. So like, it just looks like a cut up photo for one second in black and white. And then I'll guess where it is. And it's the most absurd content that I've ever seen where like, I can't even like process the image. I can't like see it in time. It like flashes on the screen and then disappears. And then he's like, oh yeah, that's probably like, you know, uh, Nigeria, like, uh, you know, in this specific small town off the coast or something like that. And that blows my mind. And so the only reason that I even bring this up in the first place is because I see this and I'm like, all right, guy's a nerd, but like how much money is he making like doing this kind of stuff? Or is he making any money at all? Or is he just quite literally scrolling around Google Street View for hours a day? The two things that I would want to figure out is one, I know he makes money from people will literally bring him old photos of like family or relatives and say like, hey, listen, like, you know, my parents are trying to figure out like, you know, where my long lost cousin might be or something. We only have this one photo, like where was this photo taken? And he was like, oh, that's in the park over in Japan, just off of like, you know, some some small Japanese town. The other part is it has to be a trainable. It's definitely a trainable skill. But like, do you think that this could be used for real estate acquisition? <laughs> is, is there a way to monetize it better? Yeah, I think I, I just I just want to know, are these guys undervalued or are they properly valued and they just have really stupid skills? If you look at the actual techniques and strategies that they use, it's, it's pretty cool. Some of them are heavily reliant on the actual Google Street View tech where it's like, okay, the color of the car when you go down is this color and that only happens in certain regions. So there's kind of a way to, hmm. to cheat in that regard. But then there's like the shape of the telephone pole is the big one they always look at. The shape of the telephone pole is the color on the bottom how they're marked different bollards, which now we know what bollards are like different barriers, depending on how they're marked can give you ideas of what region it's in. There's a couple of videos on how people view a bunch of this stuff. And like the, the first thing you look for in the second thing. So definitely teachable skill. I don't think there's a big industry to make money on it because I don't think at, at any point you're not going to be able to compete, I think, against a computer that's going to be able to do it. But I think that's it's a cool trick and, and hobby. Right. Well, I was actually going to say it reminds me of another super niche skill game that I think people have gotten pretty good at is uh, wiki races, Wikipedia races. You know about this? 
I think, where is it within like two or three clicks or four clicks, you have to get to a certain topic. Okay, well, now I feel like I might be doing the service because I don't know that much about it. But my understanding is that it's a race. So it's time based, not click based. I think maybe you can do a click based version. I don't know. But it's like, hey, listen, you're going to start off on SSUS main battleship from World War Two. And you have to go and find a way to get to balloon animals, the different Wikipedia pages, just by clicking the hyperlinks on those pages. And this isn't just like you're not playing this on Wikipedia per se. You are there's preloaded Wikipedia pages on some site called Wiki Races or something like that. I personally think that's a really fun one as well. And I've heard of that like a couple of years ago. But I will to your point on the GeoGuessr stuff, I'm now second guessing myself in terms of how many people know about it, only because like I, I realized I learned what. Is it what's the what's the weird trend where people really like a certain sound? Is it ASMR? ASMR? Yeah, I just learned about that like six months ago, too. So like, (laughs) I I know that's really popular. Yeah, maybe I'm just late on it, but I'm trying to I want to figure out who knows about it. I think we're either really early on certain topics or apparently extremely late. Yeah, like I just found out about this new clothing brand yesterday. It's called Nike. Have you heard of it? On clothing brand side note, I didn't realize Tipsy Elves for anyone that doesn't know. Ugly sweaters, really funky kind of clothing. Shark Tank, originally, I think a while ago, and I think they're doing like under a million in revenue. I think one of the guys gave them $200,000 or $100,000 or something, and now they're doing $100 million plus a year on ugly sweaters. Want to know would be an interesting segment of the show if we started doing like Shark Tank breakdowns. I think, so on the tipsy sale stuff, yes, super interesting. What's crazy is I'm so curious what percentage of that those sales are in Q4. Like the idea of just having to do really seasonal stuff. So now they, they do really seasonal stuff, but for different seasons. I bought my Halloween costume from them. Now they pitch. Oh, really? they, I, think, I think they're just breaking down attire for different seasons, which yes, they're probably heavily focused on still in the Christmas stuff, but it's not really seasonal if you pick every single season and find a sales stream it? for each one. Do you think they have huge regrets around the name now, if they're expanding or no? Interesting question. I don't know. Like argument to be made that that probably helped them scale out significantly further in the beginning when it was mostly ugly sweaters, right? I always think I would err on the side of find the more niche name to get your footing. And if you have to rebrand later, do it. But otherwise, it'll help you enough to kind of get there. So I think that's probably fair. Wow, they have really aggressive sweaters. It's literally just a photo of a naked Santa Claus with a present over his spot saying, I have a big package for you. Okay. <laughs> I I think it would be interesting to do breakdowns of some Shark Tank companies later on. And like, if all of these models actually make sense, it's so funny because I remember growing up watching all of this stuff. And you know how as like a consumer in the early days, you would probably look at all of Kev, uh, is Kevin O'Leary. Is it, who's the, Kevin O'Leary. is it the Mr. Mr. Wonderful, Wonderful guy? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you'd see all of his deals. And at the time, you'd be like, wow, he's an asshole. And like, he's just giving them like terrible deals every time. And now that I'm watching them a little bit more, I'm like, honestly, that's that's probably the deal I would want to do as well. I was like, that that deal probably the makes conclusion, the most Connor, sense. Connor has become an asshole. <laughs> I was like, I was like, that deal probably makes the most sense. Like getting 20% of this business that's making no money, like you're not going to make any money back. Like, good luck with that. But I, mean, I, think, I think also... The, the other big one is like, oh, we thought these were the coolest companies in the world and made all like the most money. And now you just realize like now they're they're picking companies that are just yeah. going to do well on, on TV and half the oh, time. No, very entertaining <laughs> companies. Yeah, exactly. Right. I do think it would be interesting to do a breakdown here on Cuban's cost plus drugs company, because that's mm-hmm. definitely really interesting. I think he's not that he was ever retired in the slightest, but I think he's going to be shifting a lot more of his 
time and energy from my understanding away from like new projects and entertainment and investing and trying to build out some massive pharmacy company on the cost plus drug side. So definitely pretty interesting. I think we should probably do a breakdown of that later on too. Especially because a lot of these guys do different projects, but it does seem like the drug one is kind of like his next big all in focus, at least from what I've read online. So it would definitely be interesting. Cool. All right. I'm going to wrap up the podcast here. If anyone has any thoughts, feedback, things they want us to jam on, or I don't know, anything else on this entire topic, we'll keep on coming up with these episodes probably bi-weekly just because they're easier and honestly more fun for us. And we'll be bringing on still interesting guests on a weekly basis as well. So let us know. And if you think you have a ton of really interesting ideas, um, shoot us a list over and maybe we will invite you on for one of these episodes. Oh, yeah. Somebody actually did that and I sent him a calendar link. So he's going to be on soon. I'll tell you after the episode. Perfect. I love it. See you.